In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. On today's episode of Radically Genuine, we take a look at the most effective marketing campaign in human history, a campaign so effective it has led to billions in annual sales and changed the way society views emotional experiences, a message so influential it remains assumed to be true to this day, even by physicians. In the last month, I started following you on Twitter. And one of your tweets came up, and I'd like to read it to you guys right now. Okay. Here it is. The chemical imbalance lie perpetuates false beliefs that something is broken within the brain, drives people towards drugs to fix what is broken. A theory never supported by science has become a driving force behind billions in psychiatric drug sales. Yeah, that shouldn't be controversial at all, but it is. The chemical imbalance lie. The chemical imbalance lie. And I'm, I'm imagining most of our listeners still believe that if you are experiencing common mental health problems such as depression and anxiety, it actually means that there might be something imbalanced within your brain that's required, that requires some correction by a pharmaceutical. And we've been conditioned to believe this, right? It's, it's become cultural myth at this, at this point. But it's going to be so surprising for most of our listeners to to understand that this has been refuted scientifically. Well, well, hold on. Let me correct you because I do recall seeing a commercial in the early 2000s that showed two uh, nerves and these drawings going back and forth between the two <laughs> to connect that was showing uh, a representation of my happy uh, chemicals in my brain. I kind of yeah. remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it's been marketing propaganda and not science. So it's been refuted um, since the 1990s. I mean, it was, originally it was a hypothesis to try to understand biologically what might be happening for people who are prone to depression. And unfortunately, or fortunately, um, these are just theories and they need to be tested and they need to be supported with evidence. So let's, can you pull that up and just let's try to listen to that. And uh... You know when you feel the weight of sadness. You may feel exhausted, hopeless, and anxious. Whatever you do, you feel lonely and don't enjoy the things you once loved. Things just don't feel like they used to. These are some symptoms of depression, a serious medical condition affecting over 20 million Americans. While the cause is unknown, depression may be related to an imbalance of natural chemicals between nerve cells in the brain. Prescription Zoloft works to correct this imbalance. You just shouldn't have to feel this way anymore. Only your doctor can diagnose depression. Zoloft is not for everyone. People taking MAOIs or Pemazide shouldn't take Zoloft. Side effects may include dry mouth insomnia, sexual side effects, diarrhea, nausea, and sleepiness. Zoloft is not habit-forming. Talk to your doctor about Zoloft, the number one prescribed brand of its kind. Zoloft. When you know more about what's wrong, you can help make it right. So see our ad in uh, Fitness Magazine there. I saw that. And uh, 
for the for the listeners, I'm um, obviously uh, you know we'll be able to share this with um, some links to it. But that's I remember seeing that. Yeah, we'll, we'll put the, the links in, in the summary. So, yeah, the, the white blob, yep. moving, you know, drudging through the day, sad and depressed. Um, I remember all those commercials from mm-hmm. the early 2000s. Yeah, 2002 was very clear that there was no chemical imbalance. And the, the prevailing thinking on mental health conditions, it's a complex interaction of many variables. Are some people potentially prone to experiencing their emotions intensely or maybe prone to depression? Sure. We see this in uh, artists, for example, creative people, sensitive people. Um, But to be able to simplify it, that it is related to certain neurochemicals is refuted by every major medical organization um, and is not supported science. But what we've seen in the implications, it's driven people to kind of view their own internal experience as if it's disordered, Mm -hmm. as if there's something broken that requires fixing. And you know, the early um, pharmaceutical sales pitches were talking about it in terms of diabetes. Like, just like you need to, to correct your pancreas's ability to produce insulin, um, this drug is going to do something similar. And no, it doesn't, right? It has nothing to do with that. Um, in fact, these drugs don't correct chemical imbalances. They create temporary brain dysfunction that for a small amount of people might reflect on that as having some psychiatric benefit. So maybe somebody experiences an emotional numbing from taking the drug. They might temporarily view that as relief. But what we see through our evidence is it's, it's a small percentage of people. Well, so, go, go ahead. ahead. Okay, Kelly. So, and I'll comment on or ask this question later, but so as an educator throughout the course of, of my career, I've talked to many students and I remember teaching at the middle school and there were, there were students as young as like 12, 13 that back then, I don't want to age myself, but back then they were saying, you know, consciously looking at me saying, well, yeah, I mean, I have a chemical imbalance. <laughs> so this, how far does this go? How, how many people do not understand that that is not necessarily a fact, you know, a fact? Well, I think we're at generations now. I'm going to be 45 years old this summer. Yeah, I'm 43. So I, I grew up in the 1980s, and this is before Prozac was marketed to the general public, but we were able to see the shift in, in the messaging that occurred from the 1980s into the 1990s. But what has changed over the course of the 1990s since antidepressants have been marketed to the general public is the narrative has shifted from um, our emotional struggles as being normative and part of a human a human lifespan, like the chi- the challenges and tribulations of adolescence, mm-hmm. um, have always been like widely known about how how difficult of an adaptation period that is developmentally, and how they're prone to mood related problems um, due to rapid changes, hormone changes, and it's only been recently the pre- last previous generations that ha- that's been identified as a as a mental health disorder. Um, again, what does it do? It drives the sales of psychiatric drugs. What are some of the numbers right now for this as an industry? Oh, it's enormous. Um, I actually was very surprised by it. So, I mean, we're coming out of COVID, right? So just the global antidepressant market in 2020 was $26 billion. And to me, that's an enormous amount of money. But then just during that COVID window, uh, here in the United States, there was 30 million prescriptions uh, from March of 2019 
through that entire year. So it's increased significantly in just the past year. It's insane. If those numbers were medicating normal, um, and we're assuming that those, those drugs are going to improve the quality of a, of a person's life. So I got a question. Um, as someone who's always been interested in advertising and marketing, there's certain campaigns that I would put up in there as the most successful ever. One of them um, would be uh, for razor blades. When you turn 16, I'm sure many of you received a package in the mail for your first razor to start shaving as a man. Um, convincing the male population that you need to invest three months worth of your paychecks on a diamond ring. Would you put this campaign Mm. chemical imbalance in there as one of the most successful marketing campaigns ever? Absolutely. It shifted the way society thinks about their own experience. Nothing can compare to that. Let's talk about the implications of this. Um, we are in a mental health crisis right now. And it is so easy to blame it on COVID because of the isolation, mm-hmm. the lockdowns, the fear. But for those who are, who've been working in the, in the mental health field, we've been seeing this increase dramatically um, each year um, with, a, with a large jump um, in when we became more dependent on social media and, and smartphones. So there's certainly a societal factor to this. But what we see is that we've become re- less resilient as a people um, because we don't, we don't talk about resiliency. We don't think about our own mood states and our own struggles in terms of opportunities to grow and solve problems and overcome challenges. We think about things in terms of like disorders now. It's the impact of the medical model to think about what you're experiencing now can be labeled as a psychiatric condition. And that's new. That's new in the past couple generations. And it's very much infiltrated into our culture, TV, um, sports. Well, so we want to know if somebody says, what's wrong with you? You want to be able to answer that question. Oh, well, I'm this. You want to have mm-hmm. a label. You're saying like a label matters to many people. Yeah. I mean, the, the idea of just like talking about um, what are typical struggles and adaptations over the course of, of life is is less part of the narrative now. I right. mean, you're... you're, you're you're listening to, to teenagers no longer identify, I'm feeling sad. It's, I'm depressed. You know, it's the label of the depression. And we were talking to my daughter, who's a 16-year-old who's a in high school, and she's talking about learning in health class that, like, if you experience depression, it's a very serious medical condition related to chemical imbalance in the brain, and it's a medical disability like any other. Um, and that's really problematic to think about that first, because we have no test for it. Like we can't, we don't have the ability to measure levels of depression. We're, we're relying on a person's interpretation of their own experience. Yes, we can, we can get an idea of like, uh, of observing their reaction to situations. Like it's typical for someone to be depressed, to have difficulty functioning, difficulty getting out of bed, Mm -hmm. uh, might have a lot of negative thoughts, suicidal thoughts, even their mood can be down for majority of the time for like extended periods. And it really impacts, um, their ability to function. And I don't want to downplay the seriousness of that. People who are struggling like that need help and need support. Just the idea that they should be driven to a drug and that makes the difference is not supported by, by science. And so it's changed the way We've been able to solve problems. Our emotions are adaptive. Through evolution, we experience these emotions, whether they're jealousy, whether it's sadness, whether it's anger. 
for a purpose, to thrive and to survive. And if we don't have the ability to understand what our emotions are telling us, what they're informing us, well, then we are moving further away from being able to solve the problems that actually make us miserable. So in education, one of the things that is common in the last, like, say, two years, it's, it's kind of a gimmicky thing, is, you know, fail forward. Now, I'm a big believer in, 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 in you learn from failure. Resiliency occurs when you fail, you learn. But in education, a lot of individuals will say that, but they won't allow students to fail. They won't allow students to actually learn from mistakes and so on. What do we do, you know, in the education system to kind of help, you know, get that, that idea out there that it really is what is needed. You need to let kids, you know, get out there, make some, make these mistakes and not be punitive with grading and things like that. Well, first of all, it's a mindset shift. We have to change the way that we understand the human experience. I say this often, people are afraid of emotions now. I, I'm an owner of a psychological practice, a pretty large center in our region. You know, we have months of waiting list to get in here um, because there is a fear now of when people begin to experience struggle about potentially what it could mean. And um, the idea that they don't have necessarily the capabilities to be able to cope with such problems without going into some form of formal treatment. Now, we, can, we might be able to talk about that as some advancement in society, um, but I also think about it as part of how people's self-efficacy and confidence and ability to overcome problems has been um, undermined through targeted marketing such as this. You know, there was a very interesting you know, commercial because they talk about things in terms of something in the brain being imbalanced, something that can't be tested, something that you can't observe. And then they identify normal human processes you know, everyone feels down every once in a while. Everyone has a difficult time getting going, every, you know, every once in a while. Um, so it can be widely applied to almost everybody. And that's what makes this marketing genius is because what was a small percentage of the human population, those who were experiencing clinical depression, in history you read about it, it's called melancholy. It was just an episode. And we used to see this, like depression was episodic. Um, it was something that was a period of time that people largely resolved on their own with support from family, maybe community, maybe religion, maybe family. Maybe it was just a natural process that someone needed to resolve and heal, um, ending relationships, traumatic experiences. But there was always a, a percentage of the population that actually needed some clinical intervention. Well, that's extended itself. Mm -hmm. um, there's a large percentage of the population now who doesn't know the difference between what is a normal experience and what puts them in that small population of people that really have struggled to, to be able to cope. And commercials such as those are what began to shape the narrative. So as, as in Sean is in, like working in advertising in the West coast, tell, tell the audience a little bit more about like, why is this so important and, and so powerful? Like I remember seeing it, it wasn't like, okay, but I remember thinking if I were feeling that way, I actually would be like, I would want to go out and, and, and try this because it, it looks like, hey, this, this could work for me. What is advertising and marketing, what is their role in all of this? Well, I mean, at the core, all marketing is just to influence behaviors and choices. And, and the, I guess the thing that's I'm more disturbed is the two of you were touching on some things that were people and teenagers that are using this chemical imbalance language. 
Um, I don't know. I just think back to when I was younger and the experiences that I went through and man, we're all hormonal. We're going through, uh, um, puberty and emotions are going up and down every single day. I don't even know what normal would be at that situation. And looking back, those things shaped me and turned me into the person I am today. And yeah. I'm glad I learned um, how to you know control my emotions and be the person I am now. I'm kind of more balanced now than maybe I was 20 years ago. The thing that is is that I think what we're all seeing right now is um, because it's so common and everybody's using the language. I mean, 30 million prescriptions for antidepressants last year. 30 million. 30 million um, to me is just, that just shows the amount of people that are taking these drugs. And it becomes easier for other people to then take those drugs. There's a, there's a marketing term. Um, it's actually it's probably even more psychological. It's the herd mentality. Right. Right. So um, as a behavior or a brand becomes more common, and in our social obs- observations, we're seeing those people do things. Or you can have a conversation with a friend and like, oh, you're feeling sad. You've got anxiety. Just go to your doctor. You know, just, just tell them how you're feeling and you'll get a prescription. And whenever you feel that way, you just pop this pill. I mean, that is what marketing has done because it's trying to show you that there's this magic pill mm. out there that will, will basically solve your problem, uh, at least temporarily. Um, and those are all really emotional choices. They're not rational. Yeah, I mean, we're, we have a complete shift in the healthcare system. We've been about treating symptoms, and we fail to even understand some of the causes and supporting health. And, you know, you brought something up that, you know, really kind of triggered in my mind what has transpired over the last decade for me in providing therapy and providing cognitive behavioral therapy is I, I find the, the first part of what I do often is getting our clients just to be able to identify, label, and understand their emotions because they live in a society now where they judge that experience, where they use psychiatric labels very quickly um, and fail to understand the full range of emotions that one might experience in context. So for example, like if you are Kelly having a fight with your wife and I see you an hour later and you're sad or down, it's very important that you understand you feel sad or down because in context, it followed having an argument and conflict with your wife. But people now will just say, I'm depressed for no reason. And that is what is concerning about this. It's created that degree of uncertainty in the individual that you don't understand where your emotions come from. And the origins of experiencing those emotions are not understood. And they're often viewed in terms of, well, there could be something wrong with me. And that's that uncertainty drives someone to try to fix the problem. Mm -hmm. And if you go to a physician, let's face it, like those appointments are 10, 15 minutes long, 20 minute interviews. If you're lucky. So you're just talking about a symptom. I feel down. You're not understanding why you're not gathering history. You're not understanding things in context, things that are absolutely necessary um, in, in a mental health interview. It's just not, it's not occurring. There's so there's such an overwhelming amount of people being flooded into the system. And I know what our listeners might be saying. Yeah, but that's not me. I'm going through something really, really serious. Mm-hmm. And that's not to discount that because mm-hmm. there are people going through um, very serious and difficult emotional struggles. What I'm telling you is the effect of care and treatment, at least initially, is for that to be understood in context with a professional over time. There is no quick fix. There is no quick diagnosis. And life is extremely hard. Even if you don't 
face loss, trauma, economic difficulties. Life is hard, Mm -hmm. right? We as human beings suffer in this life. And we don't talk about how to suffer well, how to overcome challenges, how to get wiser and stronger with post-traumatic growth. So that leads me into, I mean, a story I can only, I can't really say much, but in terms of specifics, but students in the past and actually this, you know, recently said, you know, what, what I'm about to read from this book is I wish someone would have taught me how and what to do. So this is from a book called Anatomy of an Epidemic. I would encourage people to read it because it's got, it, uh, the research is amazing out in it. It's by uh, Robert Whitaker. Um, here's a, a quote from a, a, a girl named Melissa. She says, I do wonder what might have happened if at age 16, I could just, um, I could have just talked to someone and they could have helped me learn about what I could do on my own to be a healthy person. I never had a role model for that. They could have helped me with my eating problems and my diet and exercise and helped me learn how to take care of myself. Instead, it was you. You have this problem with your neurotransmitters. And so here, take this pill Zoloft. And when that doesn't work, it, it was take this pill Prozac. And when that didn't work, it was take this pill Effexor. And, when, and then when I started having trouble sleeping, I was taking a sleeping pill and on and on and on. And this vicious cycle comes. I mean, comment on that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I, I talk about that in terms of invalidation within the healthcare system. So there's a great science of emotion regulation. We as psychologists should be highly interested in how people regulate their emotions in order to achieve goals in their life, solve problems, overcome challenges. And in a situation like this, that young lady talked about the struggles she had with eating and potentially body image or other concerns. There might have been something in going on within her family or her peer group at the time. So obviously within the context of all those challenges, she needs some support, right? She needs help. She needs the ability to talk through that for it to be understood and to be able to develop the skills to be able to solve those problems and overcome it. Because if you believe in human resiliency and our natural ability to be able to overcome such challenges, especially ones that might be very developmental such as that, if you go and you're saying, taking, just take that pill, we're oversimplifying complex issues. And obviously that pill is not going to solve anything that she's going through. In fact, you're going to see exactly what she experienced in the overwhelming majority of cases. It's not going to solve the problem. Another prescription is going to be provided. That is at best going to do nothing. At worst, it's going to create some debilitating side effects. Then another pill, then another pill. And we're seeing this in the, in the mental health system. I'm getting more and more people where their first line of intervention was multiple medications. And at this point, we don't know what the problem is. The original problem, they went for, for help or the multiple medications they've been on for, for years. I saw on your Twitter feed, which is awesome, um, one, one response came and, and basically was, um, I feel as if they were getting defensive with you because they had opted to, maybe they were medicated, okay? And maybe it did work for them or they believe it did. What do you say those individuals do that feel like you're minimizing yeah. their the decision or their parents' decision? How do you reach them to, to get them to understand that, look, we're on the same side. We're yeah. just trying to point out that what you've heard and, and what you've been convinced of is, is actually not factual. 
Yeah, it's a good question. There's this term pill shaming now, you know, as if if you turn to, to pills and somebody questions their efficacy or your willingness to do so, then, you know, these comments or this discussion today is pill shaming. And boy, that's really dangerous in society because in science, we have to consistently evolve. Science is this evolution of data. And there is a community of people out there that have been harmed from psychiatric medications, taught to believe that there is a chemical imbalance with him that needs to be corrected. And part of that is because of these messages from big pharma that have gone on for 30 plus years at this point, that the way people think about mental health and mental health treatment has changed dramatically. So Sean, you had brought up uh, earlier before we started recording the idea that um, with with your expertise and how all the different people you've worked with, I'm, I'm pretty sure that um, in the West Coast and, and all of the influencers and Hollywood and pro football, uh, you know, pro basketball, um, I'm just wondering, is there any connection, uh, you know, there with, with this idea that chemical imbalance and things like that? I'm wondering if you've ever experienced anything or you could share something. Well, first, I never said I was an expert in anything. <laughs> I, I, well, that's true. I'm a jack I'm of many, master that's, of none. That's a good point. Um, and, I, and, you know, when we were talking about the herd mentality, and I, I think what we're seeing, um, especially with social media, is the idea that social influencers can uh, make an impact um, and I don't want to say that pharmaceutical companies are using social influencers to get people to take their medication. But when we see things like the chemical imbalance being referenced in multiple areas and becoming more commonplace, it's easier for others to associate and believe it to be true. Um, and Roger brought up the NFL and there was a commercial, um, maybe about a year or so ago. So why don't we just, uh, touch on that really quickly, um, just to show how prevalent that language is. I wish more people knew there's a chemical imbalance in the brain. How it's not just someone being weak, not being tough or being a man. We need more sympathy and empathy for these people. These cleats do more than support me in the field. They provide resources and aid for those affected by suicide. I'm Solomon Thomas. So talk a little bit about, break that down, because isn't that fundamental? I mean, what I'm read, what I've read, our discussions and the research that we have, that's not telling. It's not the truth, right? So, what, 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 what is that? Yeah. So, I'm going to assume that the intention of that that message was a good one to try to decrease stigma and like increase empathy. Um, but the secondary effect to that is it, it, it's a, it's number one, it's a lie. You know, the idea that people who are suffering have a chemical imbalance. And again, that impacts coping, that impacts the way that someone views what's experiencing within them. And we have good data on this now that um, it decreases outcomes if somebody believes that there is an imbalance in their brain. But I think what we're seeing right here is the bigger problem, that the language has become so common that people can use it so freely because they think people will understand exactly what it it's is. It's not even about. challenged. Even if it's, yeah, it's, it, that's the problem, is that um, it, they believe it to be true, or, or they're saying it in this particular commercial because they know the general public understands what chemical imbalance is, mm. not anything else that they may want to communicate as really the, uh, the main point of this whole campaign, which is uh, destigmatizing uh, mental illness, which... But it has the opposite effect, right? So yeah. as soon as you use the term chemical imbalance and illness, the impact on society is one that adds stigma. 
because now I fear you're out of control. You're crazy. There's something wrong with your brain. And that is the impact on society. It creates a, an us and a them. And whenever there's an in-group and an out-group in society, that's where you have discrimination, where you have fear, where you don't come together to have empathy and understand. In fact, really what we have to do is we have to normalize struggles. And then we have to treat our be ourselves better as society and those who are impacted by that abuse and what would happen to them and the impact it would have on them in their ability to cope psychologically. Um, and the widespread impact of just periods of low mood and fear and anxiety, things that are like a normal part of the human condition are not normalized when you talk about things in terms of illness or chemical imbalance. So I'm going to read a quote to you from a study by Angle. Um, and again, we'll link these um, to the podcast. The shift from talk therapy to drugs as the dominant mode of treatment coincides with the emergence over the past four decades of the theory that mental illness is caused primarily by chemical imbalances in the brain that can be corrected by specific drugs. That theory became broadly accepted by the media and public, as well as the medical profession after Prozac came to market in 1987 and was intensively promoted as a corrective for deficiency of serotonin in the brain. Mm. So here's my question to you. That literature is out there all over the place. Why don't people know about this? Why don't people know about these studies that we're reading about? What can we do to get them to do yeah. that? Yep. And why are they underreported? It's a really good question. First of all, I think the majority of the population doesn't read scientific data and scientific studies. So to like assume that people are going to be interested in that is, is you know, just not realistic, I think. Um, instead, we're, we're consumers of media. I'll touch on, on one thing, um, and, and this is just uh, anybody who turns on their local news. Just pay attention during that 30-minute episode or broadcast how many commercial breaks there are, and make note of who the advertisers are. So when it comes to sharing information like this and getting news out there, um, I feel like it's not in the best interest of a lot of companies who are funded mostly by marketing investment to put out negative news about their main supporters. And even if an advertiser is not the one that they're talking about in a negative way, the media companies that are responsible for buying that advertising will request that their ads do not run during that episode or there's a separation in there or if something runs in a news story and their ads are up against it, they request a make good and they don't pay for it. So you have this almost self-fulfilling prophecy of companies that could be sharing this information choosing not to over other news because it's just not worth it. So, so the simple answer is money, mm -hmm. right? Like money makes the world go round. So, you know, that's going to control, that's going to control the narrative. Um, you know, it's interesting. They control with search engine optim optimization. You can control the narrative and what's on the first couple pages of, of Google. Yep. Even when I was doing recent research on the safety and efficacy of psychiatric drugs for child, children and adolescents, which I think is, an ethical imperative on my end to be able to present this information to parents and families, you have to get through some of these industry run drug trials that are the first two or three pages of Google, even though they're 
poorly developed and there's huge methodological flaws and statistical gymnastics and conflicts of interest. They're the ones that are, that are out there. You have to, to get to some of the more modern studies. You have to dig for it. You have to actually sometimes even contact the researchers and uh, writers of the papers uh, you know, through social media in order to be able to read. So FOIA, I, heard, I read that, that a lot of people have to have freedom of information. They have to just to get to some of these studies. Like um, I was reading a lot about, particularly when it came to antidepressants, how placebos were working just, you know, that, that actually people that were taking the placebos ended up being in a better spot, Yeah, you know, over the course of time. Yeah. Um, the, the, some of these studies, I just... Just not quite sure why. Actually, that's a drug called placebo. Oh, sorry. <laughs> right. Sorry. There you go. <laughs> well, Dumb, dummy pills. I, I had a conversation with a psychiatrist on this very issue one time. Um, and I was, at the time, knee-deep into some of the, uh, the literature on uh, antidepressants. And um, I, th- I think I read an article in 2007, and it was the New England Journal of Medicine, and they were purport- reporting that... Um, Antidepressants are basically placebos with side effects. So an active placebo with side effects. Mm. Um, if you include all the studies where there wasn't any clinical effect. So it's that whole file, file drawer uh, approach. So if, it, if your study doesn't work out, you don't publish it. So there's a publication bias. So I was talking to a psychiatrist who was prescribing antidepressants. And he agreed with me that they don't work. And I asked him the question, well, how can you then ethically prescribe this? And he said, because people believe they do. Mm. And that's dangerous, right? That's dangerous to, to, to withhold information, health care information from patients because you, because they believe it works. That's enough for you to justify prescribing those antidepressants. And at the time they didn't, we didn't believe they were, de- they were, there was dependency or withdrawal effects. And now, you know, there's a whole community of prescribed harm out there of people trying to get off antidepressants going through hell. And we don't have established guidelines for tapering um, because this is relatively new to the scientific narrative to understand that, boy, you know, anytime you take a substance, it has an effect on you physiologically that can create some form of, of dependence. Yeah. Is it your opinion uh, that, so I just, that pharma, psych, you know, psychiatry, I, I mean, just, is that realm, would you consider them maybe taking, not taking advantage of them, but learned helplessness, people that are going through a lot who don't understand their emotions and emotional connections and how to react, incapable of understanding that in most cases, maybe they are distorting things that are happening to them because of stressors. Is, are they, t- would you say that right now there are a lot of people they're being taken advantage of through marketing, through that. I mean, can we can we sum this up? Like, do you think that that's one of the biggest problems is that it is about money and it's just... Well, yeah, Kelly, I mean, it's difficult for me to kind of go down that realm because my experience with most physicians, including psychiatrists, is most believe that they're, that they're helping. Okay. That they themselves, I think, are victims of the narrative as well um, because it runs deep. Um, you know, the it's not just the marketing to society and culture, but it... It's also their um, their alignments with uh, academics and the development of textbooks. Um, when I was in my doctoral program, you know, I learned about the the chemical imbalance. This is in you know the years two thousand and four through two thousand and nine, and we were led to believe that this was an influential factor in uh, depression, anxiety, development of schizophrenia, psychosis, 
even though it, it took a lot of research on, on my own independently to come to the conclusion that that's really kind of refuted. It's never been proven scientifically, but yet it was still taught in, in my courses. So, I mean, I think it runs deep. Um, the psychiatric uh, field in general, um, it's kind of its original sin is attaching to the chemical imbalance theory of mental illness. And, and in a lot of ways, trying to legitimize themselves within the medical community to try to um, improve society through psychiatric intervention, which is all alignment with the pharmaceutical companies. So um, it's been a, it's been a, a dangerous um, it's been a dangerous path that I think over the last certainly five to 10 years, we understand more and more about the, the consequences of such an alignment because it's at the expense of other care and other treatment. Right? I do believe psychiatry can have a, a valuable place in society, but they're not utilized as physicians because how we feel is complex, um, like nutrition, um, the impact of like other physical ailments uh, with psychiatric symptoms. There's a lot of like medical conditions that can produce psychiatric symptoms. Like, you know, one of them that's common in this area is Lyme disease, for example. Uh, you know, how many people have, have come in presenting with symptoms that are psychiatric in, in, uh, in presentation, but yet the origin of the condition is actually uh, Lyme disease. So, but we've gone past, I mean, we've, We've moved past that. Like um, physicians are overwhelmed, and they are writing out prescriptions at you know enormous rates at this point, and we don't get to utilize them for a lot of other things that I think would be really valuable for for our health. But that requires time. All right. So one final thought then uh, on my end before we go. But uh, uh, I've known you for a long time. I just want you to. T- to tell this audience clearly how passionate you really are about, you know, getting people to understand, uh, you know, and getting more in touch with, with mental health and what's really out there and something new that they can take with them. Um, I'll tell you what I was fed up. Um, the challenges that I face as a psychologist day to day in the entire healthcare system, I have to be faced with making a decision on who I want to be as a professional and what I want my life to be. And I didn't feel uh, like keeping quiet on what I knew and the work I was putting in and what I was seeing with my clients. Keeping that to myself felt like um, I wasn't living the life I'm meant to, to live. So the purpose of this podcast is to bring these topics to the public, ones that I, that I think are, are extremely important for people to, to create a life worth living, full life, uh, and to overcome the challenges that they have for us to be critical about society and culture. We, we call this radically genuine because I want to try my best and I'll probably get better at this in time with just talking straight to people. I have a tendency sometimes to get a little too clinical or scientific, but I think if we can honestly and candidly just talk to people about the struggles that exist in living and what you can personally do to try to get better or who to look for or what, what does our current science like inform us? What's bullshit out there? You know, like just essentially like what can you do as, as a consumer, as an individual, if you need help, you know, who do you trust as a professional? What questions should you be asking? And hopefully we can, you know, answer a lot of those, those topics. I mean, Sean, your, your question is about like, what can somebody do? Like getting on Google as the option. And I'm a bit disenfranchised because like 
I don't believe evidence-based psychotherapy and treatment is widely available. Mm-hmm. So when we push people into the system, there's a high likelihood they're going to experience what a lot of others have, which is some quick sham diagnosis that doesn't have scientific validity. You're going to push them to drugs. There's going to be an invalidation of their experience and a lack of understanding of evidence-based principles related to human resiliency, overcoming suffering, um, and at worst, sometimes just flat out wrong advice and avoiding coping. And if, as long as that is still the dominant approach to mental health care in, in this country, we're still going to struggle. So the, one of the reasons why I'm a cognitive behavioral psychologist is because I'm very empirical in what I do. I, I understand that we all have biases. And what somebody tells me in that first hour, hour and a half interview when I meet somebody is only what they want me to know at that given time. So you have to set things up that the process of getting to understand what they're going through occurs every single day. And we have technology to do that. So you can rate your sleep. You can rate your mood change. Label the emotions, conflicts that exist, stressors that exist, what you're eating, when you're eating. And that all can be accumulated on an app where in an effective therapy, you can begin to understand what are the factors that begin to contribute to problems people feel. And there are valid and legitimate reasons for your emotional pain. And they sometimes have to be understood, not invalidated and and minimized. With that being said, you have to believe in that person that they have the the willingness and the ability to make changes in their life that are gonna allow them to feel better because it's all about creating a life worth living. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you're considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.